So in our text this morning, one of the things that you see is that on this day, Jesus was walking down the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and most likely, there were a number of fishermen that dotted the shores, that dotted the banks, but Jesus focused his attention on two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew, along with James and John. And he called them from their fishing into full-time discipleship. And in this full-time discipleship, Jesus committed himself to training these men, not simply to fish for fish, although that's really fun, but to take an even greater and more important role in world history, which is to fish for men, fish for people. Now, the church has a checkered history with evangelism and fishing for people. I was actually looking for a parable that I've once heard. Most likely it came from a missionary somewhere who, uh, going out into the mission field, noticed how the church, the, the, the cycle that the church has gone through when it comes to missionary work and evangelistic endeavors. And one of the, one of the uh, commentaries that I consulted as I was looking for this particular parable that I've heard a few times actually had the parable written in it. And so I just want to tell you this. It's a picture of... Uh, what evangelism and the church's concern for evangelism has often been like. So hear this parable. On a dangerous sea coast where shipwrecks were frequent, a crude little life-saving sta- station was built. In the building, it was just a hut, and there was only one boat, but the few devoted crewmen kept constant watch over the sea. And with no thought for themselves, they went out onto that sea day or night, tirelessly searching for anyone who might need help. And many, 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 many lives were saved by their devoted efforts. And after a while, this station became famous. And some of those who were saved from the the terrors of the ocean, as well as some in the surrounding area, they wanted to become a part of the work that this this life station was accomplishing. And so they gave some of their time, and they gave some of their money to support this station. And new boats were bought, and additional crews were trained, and the station grew And some of the members became unhappy because the building was rather crude. And so they thought, you know what? A larger, nicer place would be more appropriate as a first refuge for those that we save from the sea. And so they replaced the emergency cots in their crude little hut with hospital beds. And they put better furniture inside an enlarged building. And soon, the station became a rather popular place for its members to gather and discuss the work and to visit with each other. And they continued to remodel the the new building and to decorate it until the station more and more and more took on the look and the character of a club. And fewer members were interested in actually going out on those life-saving missions, and so they hired professional crews to go and do the work on their behalf. Now, this life-saving motif still prevailed on all of the church on all of the all of their club emblems and all of their stationery and the pens and, and, and all the other things that they had. They had shirts and everything like that. And there was a, a a lifeboat in the room where the club held its meetings and its initiations. And one day, however, 
a large ship was wrecked right off the coast. And the hired crews brought in many boatloads of cold, wet, half-drowned people who were dirty and bruised and sick and smelly. And the beautiful club, the beautiful new building that they had put together, was terribly messed up. So the property, property committee immediately had a shower built outside where the shipwreck victims could be cleaned up before they came inside. And at the next meeting, there was a split in the membership of that club. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities altogether. It was an unpleasant hindrance to the normal social life of this club. But some few members kept insisting that life-saving is their primary purpose, and they pointed out that they were, after all, still called the life-saving station. But those members were voted down and told that if they wanted to go and save lives, they could begin their own station along the coast somewhere else. And as the years went by, after they built this new station, that station gradually faced the same problems as the one that they had left. It too became a club. Its life-saving work also became less and less of a priority. And the few members who remained dedicated to life-saving began another, still yet another station. And history continued to repeat itself. And if you visit that coast today, you'll find a number of exclusive clubs along the shore. And shipwrecks are still frequent in those waters, but most of the people drown. This has been, in many ways, this is a a very accurate picture of the church that we see in our day when it comes to evangelism when it comes to witnessing, when it comes to getting out there and ministering for Christ. And as we'll see later on in the message, you will see that Jesus was very, very, very intentional in the way that he ministered to people. It was never simply social issues. Jesus did have a ministry of care, a ministry of compassion, a ministry of mercy, but it was always coupled with the proclamation of the gospel. And in our day, a lot of ministries that once started out as fire, you know, like really on fire to proclaim the gospel, they've turned into what we now see as merely social clubs who are more concerned with bringing food than bringing the life-saving gospel of Jesus Christ. And that switch can never happen. But it happens over and over and over and over and over again. And when we go back to this text in Matthew chapter 4, we see that Jesus called his first disciples here and he called them to a specific purpose. He called them to a specific role, that of being fishers of men. Jesus was calling them to set up a life rescue station. Now, you might have any number of thoughts on fishing. You might despise fishing because every time you've tried it, you've gone out there and spent long days casting your, reel, casting your lure into the water and you caught nothing. Regardless, fishing and the industry of fishing, it's huge in our day. If you walk into any big box store, you will see an entire section devoted to the sale of fishing rods and lures and nets and everything needed for that wonderfully relaxing day on the water. And that's what fishing is in our day, right? It is, for the most part, a hobby of relaxation. I don't know what you picture when you think about a day fishing, 
But unless you thoroughly hate it and see it as a waste of time, you probably, you might get that idea from the, the old scenic picture from the Huckleberry Finn novels. You remember that? Sitting lazily and relaxed on the shoreline with your hat pulled down over your eyes to protect them from the sun and a straw of, of grass hanging from your, from your mouth, dangling from the side of your mouth, fishing line tied to the tip of your toe, connected to a bobber, down into the water in hopes that a little fish will grab onto that hook, tick your toe, and you can pull it in. Or maybe you picture it like more like the fishing that I do, standing on a shore or on a dock, constantly throwing lures into the water and reeling them in in hopes of landing the big one. Either way, these are calming, relaxing times. Times that we take to get away from the hustle of regular life and instead surround ourselves with peace and with the sounds of God's creation. However, when we encounter the disciples on the, on the shore or in their boats fishing, when we see our Lord calling his first disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they were fishing, but not for the purpose of relaxation. What they were doing was anything but relaxing. This was their job. This was their livelihood. This was hard, difficult labor. It's how they spent, and it's, it's as they spent themselves, as they gave everything they had physically and emotionally as they spent themselves trying to net these fish, it's in this context that Jesus calls out to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And as we come to our text, Matthew tends to move pretty quickly through the calling of Peter and Andrew, leaving out some of the details that are filled out for us in Luke and John's Gospels, which we'll get to. But look at verse 18. While walking by the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers... Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Now, reading Matthew alone, it might sound as though this was the first time that these men had encountered Jesus. You see, it's not that Jesus kind of came hovering down the beach with his hair whipping in the wind and his sash beaming brilliantly. It's not just like Andrew saw Jesus from the boat and was like, oh my, look at that guy. I got to go and follow him. Like, whoa, Peter, 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 look at that guy right there. And they just jump out of the boat and follow him. Because Isaiah 53, 2 tells us that the Messiah had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Meaning you couldn't pick him out in the crowd and say, nope, that's the Messiah. That had to be somebody's role. But this wasn't the first time that Andrew, at least Andrew, well, and Peter, had encountered Jesus. Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist. And he was there when John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God. In John chapter 1, verse 35 to 42, we read of the event. Hear it. The next day, John, the next day again, John, that's John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. 
One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So before this day, when Jesus was walking down, Jesus and, and calls them, before the call of Jesus to follow, to these people, to these men, to follow him more intentionally on this day, Andrew had already spent a day with Jesus, and he believed John's testimony to Jesus when John said, Jesus is the Lamb of God. And Andrew became a follower of Jesus on that day, but in a more general sense. He believed the Messiah had arrived. He even went so far as to run and find his brother Peter and say, we've found the Messiah. And he brought Peter to meet Jesus. And after that encounter, we know Andrew believed the testimony of John the Baptist. They went back to their trade as fishermen. And some, for some of us, that's what happens. We come to the general knowledge of Jesus. We believe in him and we're sent back into our lives and we, we, we serve him in those areas. As Jesus arrives on this day while Andrew and Peter are fishing, Luke's gospel also fills in another important detail. So the first thing we need to realize is that they, Andrew and all of the disciples had met Jesus previous to this event. And second, on this day, Luke tells us that Jesus also performed a miracle. He fills in some of the details for us in Luke chapter 5. Look at Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. That's another name for the Sea of Galilee, by the way. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let, your, let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat, Come and help! And they came and filled both, both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So Simon and Andrew along with James and John, as we will see, were all mending their, nights, mending their nets after a long night of fishing without anything to show for it. And Jesus, the one that Andrew already believes to be the Messiah, hopped into their boat in order to teach the crowds that had been following him. And after the teaching time, he concluded, had concluded, he turned his attention to Peter. And he performed a miraculous deed in the presence of Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Now, Peter was no amateur fisherman. Peter had been at this all night. He knew how to fish. He knew that there was nothing happening in that water because he had spent all night casting his nets without catching anything. But at the word of Jesus, 
even though tired from an exhausting night of casting the nets, he dropped his nets in the water one more time. And their nets on this final drop, when they started to pull them in, were busting with fish, so many fish that the text says the boats were in danger of sinking. And when the apostle Peter, or when Peter saw this, he fell down before Jesus. Peter had come to see what Andrew had seen. Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, the Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world, and it sent a wave of shame throughout Peter as he confessed his inadequacy and understood that he was not worthy to be in Jesus' presence. And you know what? The same is true for you and me. The same is true for you and me. We are not worthy to be in the presence of our Savior, Jesus Christ, but he is so gracious He is so wonderful. He is so forgiving to everyone who recognizes this truth that he is the savior of the world. And upon faith in him, upon trusting in him, he forgives us and makes us worthy to be in his presence by crediting his perfection to us. It is a wonderful, wonderful truth of the gospel. Jesus is full of grace. And now as he's talking to these fishermen, he lays out his plan for them. Here's my call to you. Peter and Andrew, and as we will see, the same call to to James and John. Fish for men. Fish for people. Now, it's a wonder, isn't it? These men are not the elite in society. They're not the high ups. Like, Christians get really, really, really excited when somebody famous turns to the Lord, right? I know I I I can get caught up in it too. But that's not where Jesus went. Jesus didn't go to the really important people in society. He went to these guys, the uneducated fishermen. And yet look at what Jesus turned these men into. Christ called them to learn in his school of discipleship. And these men would eventually outstrip the wise and the cultured of the world as they proclaimed the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. And look at the world today. It is turned upside down for Jesus. All nations, entire continents have people, the people of God loving Jesus all over the world thanks to the ministry of these men. And so here, Jesus officially calls Peter and Andrew Andrew and Peter, from a general belief in him to a more specific role in his plan of salvation, saying to them, again, in verse 19, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now, throughout the gospel, you will see, throughout the gospels, you will see that a number of people follow Christ. In chapter 4, verse 25, we see this of Matthew, great crowds followed Jesus. But there's a difference between the type of following that Andrew and Peter and James and John partake in and the type of following that you see the great crowds partake in in 425. The crowds were nominal followers, not, they weren't disciples who had given the entirety of their lives to the Lord, which we will see that these four fishermen had. But these, uh, these crowds are ones who accompanied Jesus, who went along with Jesus because Jesus gave them stuff. Another example of this type of follower is found in John chapter 6. Those who ate the loaves and the fishes when Jesus fed the 5,000. You remember that narrative? The people, after getting their fill of the loaves and fishes, were so impressed at what Jesus had just done that they wanted to install him as king over Israel right then and right there. The text tells us, though, that Jesus withdrew, went to the other side of the sea. 
And the next day, those people who had ate their fill of the loaves and fishes got up and they're, hey, where's Jesus? Where did he go? And these massive crowds all hopped into their boats and they went across the sea to find Jesus. They raced across the sea because they wanted to get to where he was. And when they got to him, you think, what do you think Jesus said? Oh, I'm so glad to see you guys. No. In 626, he said, he began rebuking them. In John 626, he began rebuking them saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, you're following me because I filled your stomach. And you hope that by continuing to follow me, I will continue to give you food for your stomach. It's not me you're after. You didn't grasp the point of the sign. You didn't grasp the symbolism of the miracle. You're chasing me for what you think you can get from me. And so to this type of follower, Jesus said, I am not providing any more bread for your stomachs. I'm here to provide something even better. Feed on me for salvation. Eat my body. Drink my blood, which is a metaphor for turn to me and I will sustain your soul. All you guys want is for me to sustain your physical lives, your physical appetites, but I am here to sustain your soul. But when the crowds heard these words, these crowds that were following Jesus, they A, misunderstood them, and B, figured out that Jesus wasn't the meal ticket that they hoped for. So they grumbled, they turned back, and they no longer walked with Jesus. And when Jesus here calls the fishermen to follow him, he wasn't asking them to simply travel with him from place to place like the crowds had been doing. It wasn't a a mere, hey guys, hey guys, you want to tag along with me and see what I do? No, this was a call to submission. This was not a polite invitation. It was a demand. Follow me. Live in obedience to me as your master. Abandon your old ways. Abandon your old patterns, your old life, and become a full-time disciple of mine. This is the summons of the king. Both Peter and Andrew, James and John, they had no idea where they were going to go, but they knew with whom they were going on this journey with. And that was enough for them. And not only did, these men, did Christ command these men to follow him, but he revealed the goal and the office that he would prepare them for. To fish for men or people. The metaphor that Jesus uses here is actually quite appropriate to the work of evangelism because I would venture to say that all of us in here recognize that it's difficult work to go out and preach the gospel, isn't it? The type of fishing that the men knew, the type of fishing that would flood their minds as Jesus called them to the task of fishing for people was that of net fishing. And net fishing was no easy task in these days. It required long hours of intense labor. It required persistence, and it could get quite frustrating when the nets came back empty over and over and over again. This took real dedication. And now Jesus calls these four fishermen to leave off literal fishing for themselves, literal fishing to care and feed and support themselves, away from the labors that, they were, that ensured that they were well cared for to something far more rewarding, to something far greater. He called on them to fish for others. 
to be a fisherman in the kingdom of God, snatching people from the waters of judgment, from the waters of condemnation, and hauling them into eternal life. These men were called to undertake the ministry of casting the gospel out like a net in hopes of bringing in large hauls of people. Now, the method that they would have employed involved the tossing of a net outside of a boat and slowly dragging that net along in hopes of it enclosing around fish. And then the net would be hauled in, emptied out, and immediately dropped in the water again. And when Jesus called the disciples, they had been at this all night, a long and exhausting night. But here comes Jesus, and he says, cast your net right over there. And Peter dropped the net in, and a tremendous load was brought in. The whole event pictures the calling of not just the apostles, but the calling of all of Christ's people. You see, the Great Commission, or the mission that was given to us who love Christ before his ascension, is to go out into the world, to go out into all the world and make disciples. Or in other words, to cast out the net of the gospel everywhere you go, over again, over and over again. And even if the nights are long, and even if they're exhausting, and even if you have very little to show for it, we keep tossing the nets. You never know when Christ will make that one drop of the net oh so fruitful, do you? Casting the net or proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the good news of Christ is difficult work, and sometimes, many times, maybe most of the time, we'll have nothing to show for it except for our obedience to Christ, which is in itself a good thing. Obedience to Christ is a good thing. But we depend on and we trust in the Lord for the results, and we know the Scripture guarantees to us that when all is said and done, We will see that the Lord had filled the nets of all his fishermen all over the world as we see before the throne of God a great multitude of people which no human being can count. Think about that number. It's not like there's going to be a hundred people, a million people, two million people. No, it's a number that no one can count, a great multitude. And that's the point Jesus is making here. We, his people, those who trust in him, those who place faith in him, are to cast the net of the gospel everywhere we go. But sometimes we forget this, right? It's so easy to forget this as we live our lives in this world. We can get so weighed down by the cares of this world that we think it's okay not to cast out the net of the gospel. And sometimes we will even fool ourselves into thinking that God wouldn't want us to cast out the net of the gospel. But listen, this is our duty This is our mission. This is the explicit command given to us by Christ. This is why we are here. We cannot get so caught up in our earthly lives that we forget or or forego our primary purpose, one of our primary purposes on earth, the other being to exalt, magnify, and worship God with our lives. Scripture continually reminds us We are just foreigners here. We are just passing through here. We are just aliens on earth, looking ahead to the city whose builder and architect and founder is God. And as travelers through this earth, not as permanent residents, not as citizens of this earth, we are citizens of a different place. As travelers on our way 
to our heavenly city, we are called to point as many people to the city that we are going to and to bring them along with us as possible. And Andrew and Peter, on hearing the summons of Christ, responded. And look how they responded. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Without hesitation, they left it all behind to follow Jesus. No questions asked, no looking back. Instead, they went onward with Jesus. They preferred the call of Christ to their earthly affairs and devoted themselves wholeheartedly, without reservation, to the command of the Lord given to them that day. Their response was immediate. And in leaving their nets, they left their livelihoods. Following Christ was no game to these men. Now, they messed up over and over and over through their school of discipleship. But look at this, right? They were willing to leave everything behind to follow him. What they found in Christ was worth dropping their nets for. It was worth leaving their boats for. It was worth leaving their livelihood for. And they committed to following him into the dangerous domains of the world in order to call people out of darkness and into his marvelous light. In dropping their nets, they looked to Jesus as the priority in their lives. They looked to him as the one who is worth imitating, the one whose school they are wor- is worth learning from. Now, most of us won't be called to drop our nets in such dramatic fashion. Most of us won't be called to leave our livelihoods like these disciples were. However, we are all called to center our lives on Christ to revolve all we have and all we are around him. We are all, every single one of us, called to obeying what he commands and living our mission, which is to spread the good news of the kingdom in this world, gladly suffering the results of our mission. Listen, Jesus is worth losing everything to gain. And Jesus continued down the shore. It wasn't just Andrew and Peter. But it was also James and John. In verse 21 we read, Going on from there he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Now remember, according to Luke, James and John were with Peter and Andrew. And when Jesus told them to put the nets out again, The nets were filled, and they, James and John, helped Peter and Andrew bring in the massive haul of fish. And many believe that James was the other disciple that was following John the Baptist at this time. Now, it, it isn't specifically written, so I'll just leave that with you. But James and John here were in the boat with their father, Zebedee, mending the nets when Jesus called them to discipleship. Now, you see that? That's an added wrinkle to the to the story, right? the presence of their father. In the case of Peter and Andrew, there is no mention made of any family members fishing along with them. It's Andrew and Peter. And here, James and John have Zebedee with them. They're in the family business with their dad. And so what would they do? In Luke 9, we read of Jesus walking along the road and calling on people to follow him in discipleship. And one of the people he called out in Luke chapter 9, 59 said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. It wasn't that the man in question's father had died and that he simply had to go and kind of oversee the funeral arrangements, but he didn't want to leave his father. It's difficult to leave family. 
He wanted to live with his father until that father passed away and set his affairs in order. But Jesus responded in verse 60, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go proclaim the kingdom of God. And so here we have James and John sitting in their boat with their father as Jesus walks up to them and calls them to discipleship. And we aren't told how Zebedee responds. The gospel writers didn't think it mattered. All that mattered was that James and John left their father and mother to follow Christ. They did not allow any worldly restraints to hold them back because they knew, as we should, that Christ's call and claim on our lives is higher than any earthly relation. Whether it be father, mother, spouse, children, extended family, work, friends, when Christ calls, we follow no matter what. And James and John agreed. And we read in verse 22 that they immediately left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, it's no small deal to leave the boat and to leave one's father. And as we make our way through Matthew's gospel over the next however long, we will see over and over again the tension that following Jesus brings into family dynamics. In any given family, there are a number of people who are unsaved, and maybe there are a few followers of Jesus. And many times when a follower of Jesus seeks to actually live their life in submission to Christ as a disciple of Christ, this will bring tension in familial relationships. Perhaps some of you, for, this, for some of you, this is real right now. But for those of us who love Jesus, our primary allegiance is to Jesus. Our primary allegiance is to imitating Jesus. And it goes further than simply our family units. Truly following Jesus will actually bring tension into every area of your life in this world. And you have a couple of options. And I see both of these options being played out. One, you can live boldly for Christ as a disciple, or you can do what many do. Compartmentalize your Lord, compartmentalize your Savior, and live... um, your faith in a compartmentalized way. It is tempting to say, isn't it? Exuberant praise of the Lord is a good thing. It's great when we're here at church doing it. It's great when we're in the privacy of our own homes and we can talk about Jesus with our families. But it's not appropriate at work. You know, it's a private thing. I'm just going to keep it private. It's really not good when I'm with my buddies or my friends. But here's the reality. Jesus is Lord. He is Lord over the totality of your life and mine. He rules over our jobs. He rules over our bank accounts, our houses, our relationships, our possessions. And to follow him, I mean, to truly follow Jesus as a disciple is to trust his rule and to obey his command, especially his universal command to every one of us to fish for people. James and John understood this. Andrew and Peter understood this. They dropped everything to follow him. And every single one of us in our day is the same. Every believer is called to disciple-making. Every single one. All of us. All of us who say we love Jesus. Even in light of our being nervous. Even in light of us being hypocritical. Even in light of our discomfort that we may or may not say the wrong thing when we're, or or even in light of the fact that we may not have the answers to all their questions. We are commanded to make disciples. And if we aren't, 
If we aren't out there casting the net, I will tell you this, you are missing your primary calling. Now you might be thinking, well, I can't do that. I can't do that. And here's the, you're right, you can't. Neither could these four fishermen. But here's the good news. You have what they had. The reason for the success that they had in their witness is the same as any success we would have in ours. Jesus, follow him with all you are and he will make you a fisher of men. You go out and cast the net. Leave the results of that casting of the net up to him. The disciples here counted the cost. They dropped everything to follow Christ and the same call goes out to you. Christ is worth following. Christ is wonderful. Christ is the light of the world. He is the path to life and life to the full. But following him will mean that we give up much of our worldly comforts. When we set out to obey his command to cast the gospel net out into this world over and over and over, we will face repercussions from those who love the darkness. And so you must consider the cost. Is it too much for you? While we may have hardships in this world as we obey him, Peter, the apostle Peter, after a long life of ministering to people, called on those who were suffering for the proclamation of the gospel to count those trials a joy because they have been counted worthy to suffer for the name. There is a worthiness to suffering for the name of Jesus. Not because you're being a goofball, but because you're actually out there proclaiming the gospel. But if you refuse to follow Christ, if you refuse to submit your life to his lordship, to repent of your sin and to trust his name for salvation, the cost is terrible. So you have to count the cost on either side. The cost of refusing Jesus is the eternal wrath of God against your sinfulness and wickedness. The cost of serving Jesus in this life is the hatred of those who love the darkness. One is temporary and, and will all be taken care of when we enter into the joy of our master. One is eternal. Like, really, count the cost. As Jesus did on the, with the fishermen on the shore of Ga- the Sea of Galilee, he calls out to you, follow me. Are you prepared to drop your nets and to leave your boats to follow him? Are you prepared like the disciples to walk, into Jesus, to walk towards Jesus in this unflinching submission? Are you prepared for an immediate, total, unquestioning and sacrificial response to Christ's call for discipleship? And after these four men dropped everything and went to Jesus, Jesus went out and started to proclaim the gospel. It's wonderful in verse 25. He went through all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He went teaching in the synagogues. He went opening up the Old Testament scriptures and declaring who it was that these scriptures pointed to. And he also went about proclaiming, preaching, heralding, announcing, crying out the offer of deliverance from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Christ in whom we have forgiveness of sins. And this was the singular message of Christ through his time his ministry on earth. He never deviated it from it. He never got sidetracked by worldly issues. He never jumped into the fray of worldly factions, never got in, uh, involved in the social issues or personal disputes. But with laser-like precision, 
Jesus set his face towards saving the lost by proclaiming God's word, by proclaiming the good news of salvation, that salvation is open to anyone who by grace through faith in his one and only son, Jesus Christ, believes. But not only did Jesus proclaim the word, he also adorned the word with deeds of compassion and grace. And look at the text, right? It says, His fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Jesus adorned the gospel with deeds of compassion and grace. Jesus addressed both the spiritual needs and the physical needs of the crowds. And this is good for us to note. Because like we read in the parable at the beginning, there are many organizations that were once staunchly committed to the proclamation of the gospel, to casting the nets out far and wide, who have transitioned into addressing social issues and never preaching the gospel. May that never be for us. We address the social and physical needs of people for this reason, to preach the gospel. What we ultimately want is to tell people about the perfect life, the atoning death, the forgiveness and grace and mercy that are offered to them in Christ. So Jesus started out by preaching the good news. He never let social issues supersede or take priority over the main mission, but he did buttress his own net casting with works of compassion. Jesus had compassion on the hurting, the afflicted, the outcast. He showed concern, but most importantly, he preached the gospel to them. And because of this, verse 25, great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Throngs of people sought Jesus out from all over the area and followed him, but not in the sense of giving their lives over to him in submission, but in the sense of moving with him from one location to the next. And a great number of these followers went with Jesus because they could get stuff from him. Healing from a disease? Sure, count me in. Free food? Yes, sign me up. Possible liberation from the clutches of Roman Empire? I'm down. But when push came to shove, the true service and devotion of Christ called for obedience. Called for obedience to his will over cultural ideas. Called for obedience to his will over their deeply held passions and desires. And all of them went home, except for the twelve. And one of those twelve would, imme- would eventually sell Jesus over to the religious leaders so they could secure his death. So which are you? Many of us will say, I follow Christ. But which type of follower are you? Are you the fair-weather follower? The one who looks to Christ because somebody told you that you could get some amazing stuff from him? Perhaps someone told you that when you come to Jesus, everything in your life will be better. What if it's in Christ's will for you that you suffer during this life? Will you still follow? Will you remain for him if Christ's will is that you struggle financially for the rest of your life? Will you still follow? What if it's Christ's will that you remain sick? Will you still follow? What if it's Christ's will for you that you remain single for the rest of your life? Will you follow? When Christ's demands that you leave your sin behind. You know that sin, the one you keep secret, the one that you keep out of sight of others. 
Or maybe that sin that you know scripture tells you is wrong, but you're trying to appease the culture, and so you, you tout it all over your Facebook profile in order to gain the adoration of culture. Who's going to win in your affections? Who will you follow? What if your faith in Christ calls forth the hatred of those around you? What if it calls for you to leave your nets, your boat, your father? Will you follow Christ? Or will you, like these fickle crowds, turn away when, they, when things don't go like you want them to? Whenever somebody leaves the faith, it's because they didn't count the cost at the beginning. And when their passions and, and, and desires conflicted with the, the call of Christ, they choose their passions and their desires, revealing that they never truly gave themselves to Jesus as Lord. That's what these crowds did. While they seemed favorable to Jesus at different points in his ministry and sometimes uh, wanted to install him as king, it's these very crowds that eventually nodded in agreement to his crucifixion when the pressure got too high for them. Is that you? Or will you, like the disciples, actually follow Jesus? In the submission to his will and command, no matter what may come, sense. Will you entrust your life to Jesus and put your faith in him? You may not get everything in this life that you want as a result. No matter what those silly TV preachers say, but you will be given something far greater. You'll get the Lord himself. The Lord is the delight of our hearts. The Lord is our great and wonderful joy. We get him through the hard times. We get him through the difficult times. We get him in the sickness. We get him in the trials. We get him in the singleness. But not only do we get him in the here and now, but because Christ died and paid the price for our sin, all who believe get him not just now, but forever. And there is no greater joy. And for all who truly follow him by grace through faith, our call in this world is clear. So let us go cast our nets and declare to this world the joy of Christ. Let's keep our mission ever in front of us and never forget who we are called to proclaim and who we are called to proclaim him to. Amen and amen. Father, we thank you. We praise you. We love you. And I ask that you would forgive us for the times when we are fearful to go out and cast our nets, when we are fearful to follow you in full and total submission. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would be encouraging us, giving us the strength, giving us the fortitude right now to go out into this world as fully devoted followers of your Son. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. He is our great treasure. He is our great delight. And so I pray that you would help us never to fall for the lies of the enemy that tell us to trade him for anything. And so may we suffer what may. May we count it all joy as we, as we experience trials because we follow and love Jesus in this world while we are passing through. Lord, you are so good. You are worth it. And we praise you in uh, your precious son's name. Amen.